The title for today's talk is The Journey and the Goal. In yes, yesterday's talk that uh, most of you, but perhaps not, surely not all, heard, um, that was entitled Getting, I tried to make clear that in the culture that we live in, whatever it is that we try to achieve is not so much for the sake of the achievement, but of the achiever. Or in the language I use throughout the talk, whatever it is that we want to get is not so much for getting that, but for becoming the getter, the one who gets this or that. Today, still within the same general idea, I'm going to take a step back and look at the journey towards that getting. Indeed, I think it's probably quite clear to you, but forgive me if I sort of go over this, it may be obvious, but still it helps to highlight it, is that our obsession with getting, with achievement, exerts a distorting influence on the journey itself. the journey towards that goal. I'm going to pause for a moment. Somebody's trying to get in. Please um, make your way in. Feel free. We'll wait for you. So, today, I'll try to redress the balance between the journey and the goal. I'll start by examining our unbalanced view, and then, second part of the talk, I'll explore ways of bringing balance to it. Because as it needs to be clear to anybody who practices meditation, as we set our sights so predominantly, if not exclusively, on the goal, overlooking then the journey, we are in fact neglecting to listen to the intimations of where we actually are in life. So, we make our choices based on, on future expectations, on external factors, 
including very often primarily um, prospective income and uh, prospective uh, social status. It may be practical, sure, of course. I mean, we may need to pay attention to that occasionally. But in the depths of things, creates a distortion. I think Raquel is a, is a good example of this. When she was quite young, she was already painting. Maybe she was born painting, I don't know. <laughs> she was quite young, a teenager anyway. And her parents felt that uh, there was no future in that. So they insisted that they, she study medicine, and, and she compromised. For quite a number of years, she studied medicine and did uh, her heart wasn't the painting and drawing that she did on the side. And um, I must say, for the probably for the benefit of all of us prospective patients, she gave up medicine. <laughs> and did art. I, on the other hand, had a very clear goal set up for conversation with my parents, but primarily with my father, you know, who, not being a scientist, thought that science was uh, going to save humanity. In the 30s, perhaps, that could be imagined, not today. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I, I've set my goals and pursued with intensity and determination in academic career and were successful, I, you know. I, I, I got all the way up to tenure. <laughs> but there was a prize for that. The prize that because of the way I did it, and I don't mean that one has to pay that price all the time, but the way I did it was fixating on the goals and not on the journey. So, when I arrived, I wasn't present. I, I don't know why I can explain that. I wasn't fully present, that is. Of course, very happy to get this, to get that, to get a PhD, a professorship, whatever. But not fully present. In fact, a story I told yesterday about my walk from one library of Caltech to the other shows my non-presence for that, if you remember the story. I was immediately zeroing, into, zeroing in my mind on the next step. That's the way. the absence worked. And this happens in all areas of life. All areas. Take completely different areas, you know. See, we decide, we set for ourselves an overriding goal, as it happens to some, of finding a, a partner, a spouse. Well, fair enough. But then, 
we zero in only on getting this person, not on the process. We go for the most efficient marriage counselor or agency or whatever, you know. The site on the web that has more possibilities. And in doing that, in putting all the emphasis on speeding up the search, we sacrifice the process of getting to know this prospective partner. Getting to know each other. So there can be an imbalance there, easily. Or take a, a case even more dramatically. Dramatic. The, the case of athletes who are gung-ho decided to win this or that competition. And in order to do that, they take all kinds of drugs. And uh, journey is ruined to themselves. They know they've been doing that. What's the joy? So in all of this, whether it's a pursuit of a career, a search for a partner, pursuit of fame in sports or whatever, the exclusive fixation on the goal can play havoc, havoc with our journey through life, personally. And in other areas as well. T take the political area, for instance. Just, I mean, this is full of examples, full of examples. I just pick up two that are most blatant. We are, this country is now plunged into a war that's devastating the Middle East. Really devastating it. Costing millions of lives. Millions of lives. There's the Iraqi count already reaches a million. It's, it's not acknowledged, of course. And trillions of dollars. And in the end, our president has only offered one definitive justification. And the justification is we must win. defeat, as he labels this, polarity, ridiculous polarity, is not an option. At what cost? It doesn't matter. Only winning matters. And of course, similar things happened in the middle of last century in the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, which was uh, founded in 1918 on presumably very lofty goals, and even the goals were betrayed by the 
the unbelievable journey, the cruelty of the journey, totally contrary to the loftiest ideals that it was supposed to serve. In the end, not only a country, a whole area of the world, several countries in fact were destroyed and the fabric was, was put in ruins, but also the inner lives of so many people there and even throughout the world were destroyed by this betrayal. The minds, I mean, there's a demoralization it's terrible. In a, in a very much milder sort of situation, that going from extremes now to this of uh, what sometimes happens in the spiritual arena. Here, too, sometimes this penchant for goals, for prioritizing the goals of our culture, can, I'd say, contaminate our spiritual search. That happens when we, we come to a place where we think that all that matters, and the only thing that matters, is getting, quote, enlightened. I remember some years ago, maybe a decade ago, attending a teacher by, by, by a teacher who's a, I mean, I respect him in other ways. I mean, I'm not totally putting him down. His name is Andrew Cohen. And he's a teacher, disciple of Punjaji, if that means anything to you. That is, a teacher in a Hindu tradition called Advaita Vedanta, which, um, which is um, in many ways similar to our own tradition, which comes from the Buddha. In doing the teaching, Somebody in the audience, you know, you people do an inquiry asking whether it was okay, don't have the exact word, but the idea was whether it was okay to develop a thirst for enlightenment. That got uh, Andrew very intense. He took his wristwatch off, held it in his hand like this. It, the wristwatch became a token for enlightenment. And, you know, holding it, grasping it like that, he said, this is the one thing we have to pursue single-mindedness and cling to. There's no hesitation. 
there. Indeed, I mean, that's been very much uh, the nature of his teaching. And I, I'm not trying to put Andrew down. It's, uh, there are other important aspects of his teaching. But here I disagree with him, clearly. After all, he is a teacher. The, the, this Advaita Vedanta tradition is defined as a tradition of non-duality. And here he is proclaiming the duality of goals and means. In fact, there, there have been problems with his movement, and there's a book called Enlightenment Blues that <laughs> describe all the difficulty that his followers <coughs> derive from this thirst, single-minded thirst for enlightenment. It can become a trap. So, let me recap just uh, The idea is that there may be practical merits to zero in on, on goals, of course. I mean, like, yesterday you came here, your goal was arriving here. Fair enough, I'm so glad you did. Um, but, In this, in whatever area it is, whether it's personal, political, spiritual, whatever, if it doing so would disregard the journey, our attitude is bound to play into the hands of the I, of the ego, of the getter. Or in social situations, as I described before, in the hands of those in power. So, what's the alternative? The, the obvious alternative, of course, of going gung ho for the goal is to instead focusing on the journey. I remember I was very touched. This was the 70s. I lived in Long Island. And a friend of mine invited me to her home. And in her home, I can't forget it, there was a big sign lining the wall of a staircase. It's a typical New Age sign which says, the journey, not the goal. Wow, I never heard that sort of thing, you know, it was subversive. <laughs> I still remember it, I remember very distinctly the sign, the staircase. I can't remember the person. <laughs> but it was so appropriate for me. Now, today, we're thinking about that in retrospect. I find that that slogan falls short of 
the alternative I wish to propose. And the alternative I wish to propose is that once and for all we do away with the duality of journey and goal. After all, the distinction between journey and goal has nothing to do with the reality out there. It's, it's just a projection. It's very basically a way of mapping our desires. And yes, a little voice of the I, of the me. Hey, look at the goal. Go for it. In, in, in Buddhist terminology, this would be the voice of, of Mara, who is the, the, the devil self. I mean, he tries to take us away from the from the where we need to be. Take going to school, for instance. Of course, surely the goal is graduating. It's yes, something we map at the end of our course of studies. But. The studies themselves are all along the journey. Graduation is just a, an indicator, a milestone, if you wish. What's a mi we make a big thing about milestones. A milestone is a stone on the road, isn't it? Where you, you, you write down the miles. Sure. It's on the journey, really. Yeah. So the, the invitation is to be fully present with our journey so that destination is something, not something segregated out there, but experience right here. The destination is that which throbs inside us. Like being in love. In his uh, book called An Awakened Life, Christopher Titmus is my teacher too, asks this question that I find quite uh, powerful. He says, what would it mean to look at life without asking anything from it, even if for only a moment? So just for only a moment trying not to ask anything from, from life, so being able to be present. So consider what in concrete situations this would amount to. This radical proposal would allow, amount to, say, we have this wish that our partner, our child, our parent, whoever it is, our teacher, <laughs> do this or that. What does it mean to drop those demands? 
to, to let our children, our partner, whatever, act as they need to act themselves, as they act. Because if, if you try it out, you'll see that what that takes is a transformation on ourselves. That's what it takes. And that's the beauty of it. So, it is us, me, who undergoes a transformation, not my children, not Raquel, when I want her to change, whatever, you know. In the face of circumstances, I stop insisting that circumstances change in the face of me. That's it. Radical thing. And so I can, rather than being, you know, just projecting out, just find out where I lost touch with myself that I need to change so that uh, I can function. So much for the personal sphere, and the political sphere, we can consider this too. This is more difficult, but some of you, of course, know that I'm a great fan of Amy Goodman, Democracy Now! I have to give a commercial. <laughs> I watch her on TV, and you can go to the web and go to democracynow.org and find out where she, or even stream her talks, whatever. Recently she interviewed uh, the president of Bolivia, Evo Morales. Nice, cozy interview. And Evo, quoted from a conversation she ha he sorry he had had with Fidel Castro went to visit Fidel in Cuba and what did Fidel tell him I'm quoting now Evo do not do what I did wow do not do what I and Abel explained what it meant for him. And what that meant is that we need to develop social goals, yes, or socialism, if you wish, but we need to do it democratically. It needs to be a process from the grassroots, not handing out on a platter structured state that people haven't participated in building. I mean, and this comes from a guy very successful, Fidel, of course, and tells Evo, do it the hard way but the lasting way. Look into the journey. I, I thought this was extraordinary. I, I don't know that whether Fidel is consistent in that, but anyway. 
of course, who are really consistent in this in political path that doesn't distinguish between the journey and the goal is people like Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi and others who are in nonviolent political movements. So it needs to be like that. You cannot have violence in the journey to get to a nonviolent end. If you're going to to have a nonviolent end, you have to have a nonviolent journey as well. And and now how about the spiritual sphere? How do we deal with uh, this potential dichotomy between journey and goal in our spiritual quest? Here, really, we need to be consistent. That's the crux of the spiritual path to be consistent, to be true and fully there. And need to know and live the fact that the journey is the goal and the goal is the journey, that the way is the destination and the destination is the work, the way. It's true that sometimes, for practical reasons, a teacher needs to emphasize some goal, because that's what, in our culture, motivates us to move anyway. So, yeah, go for this, go for that, that gets us uh, enthusiastic, maybe. Um, here's what Joseph Goldstein says about this. He's a, a very good teacher. I admired him in many ways. I, I have some disagreement with this, but, you know, it's important to listen to him. He's talking about effort. This is in, in a book called Inside Meditation. He says, effort alone is not enough. Valuable as this quality is, it can also lead us astray if it is overdeveloped. We can become attached to the goal of enlightenment and become very ambitious with a kind of spiritual competitiveness, competitiveness or a strong self-judgment about our progress. We can strive and strain with excessive urgency that can become desperation. They can. Wanting something to happen right now gets in the way of clear seeing. It leads to frustration, disappointing, disappointment, even despair. So this is one side of the coin. And Joseph is very good at, on the one hand, on the other hand. So. Now, on the other hand, recognizing 
often through painful personal experience, the difficulty that comes from such striving, expecting mind, many people discard the notion of goal altogether. This also is a mistake. If we abandon a sense of goal and become attached to the idea that practice is simply, simply becoming aware of and mindful in the moment, without any sense of destination, development, and deepening realization, then we lose the source of tremendous energy and inspiration. I understand. I mean, uh, not total disagreement with that. Only, for me, the energy and inspiration doesn't come from a goal out there. And, um, and you know, I'm, I'm very respectful of what he says. But I insist in the radical position is that there is no distinction between journey and goal. Journey and goal are not different. The whole infinitude of emptiness is available to us as we open to what Christopher calls the immediacy of things, to each and every moment. Now, of course, it's true that the Buddha did present his teachings in the format of path and goal. The, the central teachings of the Buddha are one dependent arising that I just talked about yesterday, and the other, the Four Noble Truth. Just to take a little time to go over the Four Noble Truth, which you all have most of you have heard about, but the first truth is there is suffering. The second truth, <coughs> suffering comes from clinging. A simplified version, but true enough. And the third truth is drop the clinging. That's the end of suffering. And then comes the fourth truth that maps and details the, the aspects of the journey. So there is a, 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 a framing teachings in the context of journey and goal. Truth one, two, and four are the journey, and truth three is the goal, the dropping of the clinging, dropping of the suffering. But he was very careful not to, this, this as a practical description that's useful, yeah. but he was very careful not to turn the outcome of the path into a separate entity. One way that this happens very often in teachings 
is by taking a word and reifying that word, giving that word uh, an, an entifying, making the word into an entity, into something concrete. For instance, enlightenment. So if you keep talking about enlightenment, 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 then that becomes, to our mind, the goal, and overrides everything else. So, the extraordinary thing, if you go to the scriptures, is uh, that you'll find that the Buddha used a large number of different words so as not to reify anyone. He talked about enlightenment, yes. But he also used this variety of synonyms. He talked about emptiness. He talked about the end of suffering. He talked about liberation. He talked about the unborn. They're all synonymous, basically. The unborn, the unconditioned, unbecoming, unmade, and formless. And all these words, with the exception of enlightenment, are terms that imply losing something or going beyond something. So they're not sort of end-of-the-path kind of words, on the contrary, are words that tell us you've got to get out of this. Words that are inseparable from the journey. I'm absolutely convinced it's not coincidentally that he did this. He wanted to avoid that going gung-ho for the victory. Then, in fact, he does uh, spell this out a bit repetitiously, as they do in the scriptures, but this is what he says in the Samyutta Nikaya. He's talking to his uh, monks, calls them bhikkhus. Because one who sees suffering also sees suffering, first noble truth, also sees the origin of suffering, second truth, also sees the cessation of suffering, third truth, also sees the way leading to the cessation of suffering, fourth truth. In other words, there's no separation between these various truth, some which the third one, which means the end of the path, and the others, which mean the path itself. And he go on, goes on, repeating this in various permutations. I'll just read a little more. One who sees the origin of suffering also sees suffering, also sees the cessation of suffering, also sees the way leading to a cessation of suffering. Finally, one who sees the way leading to a cessation of suffering also sees suffering, also sees the origin of suffering, also sees the cessation of suffering. He refuses to make separate things of all of this. So, in other words, you and me and everybody here and anywhere else is really one with the world. 
it's just not a polarization of journey through the world and go just being one with the world the only problem is that we are so used to this polarization journey and goal that we may not realize it I mean not just realize it rhetorically as I am doing now in a way that's all I can do but realizing in the fullness of our hearts and mind say for instance we are walking here, obviously with no destination itself, involving the fullness of ourselves in the performance of each step, so that the, our heart and mind can come to understand that life is taking place here and now, and that's here and now that we can penetrate life. Letting us, life, touch us, permeate us. Letting this touchability, this impregnability with life, introduce us to the poignancy of each moment. Letting this soaking up of life, ripen our journey and transform us. Let's sit for a few minutes in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.